Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. But this is the second of the week. It's the electoral reform special, the sequel. Dun, 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 dun. As promised, it's uh, question time. Uh, following the electoral reform special, uh, I got so many questions, I decided that we needed to have a sequel. This is kind of, for those of you who share my wariness, I think is perhaps the word for my feelings about electoral reform as an issue of passionate interest. Don't worry, this is uh, going to be fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's like a, it's going to be like a pantomime, electoral reform, the pantomime. And for those of you who are passionate, uh, yeah, it's going to be uh, hopefully illuminating and reflecting your uh, passionate views. So this is the context, by the way, for those of you who are new to rock and roll politics and our growing cooperative. You might be saying, oh, why? I've just tuned into this because I want a deep kind of reflective, behind-the-scenes look at the uh, autumn statement, the uh, Hunt Sunak uh, statement. Uh, For that, please tune into the previous podcast, uh, which came out on Tuesday of this week, because that's where you'll get it and you'll get more early next week when we all get together again for our regular weekly podcast. Uh, But this is a special generated by, um, I've got many hundreds of questions. Now, if it's okay with all of you, obviously, I can't read them all out. I'm only going to read a few out because I've kind of designed them through themes, really, which hopefully will develop during uh, the podcast. And a couple of questions that illustrates each uh, theme of your absolutely brilliant responses. And before we come to them, I thought I would reflect for a second, if it's okay with all of you, on my kind of thoughts about the electoral reform special. To be honest, and I think some of you probably know this and guessed this, on this one, I felt a bit like a kind of uh, preacher to a congregation where the preacher has become not only agnostic, but has had one or two drinks too many uh, to get ready for addressing a congregation, some of whom are evangelical believers and some of whom uh, have doubts, but I've got such well-informed doubts um, that they make make the preacher even more nervous and go for another uh, drink. Um, But I remain of the view, and in fact some of your questions have in some ways reinforced my view, that voting reform, electoral reform, is absolutely central to bringing about change in the United Kingdom and the Westminster Parliament, which everyone must agree in, is in um, desperate need of change and revitalization. In fact, I think revitalization is really it. I've been thinking, you know, the sort of the Sunak era, where part of the reason there is an ongoing focus about, you know, sleaze and conduct is just the sheer mediocrity of the political talent. There is nothing compelling about so much of British politics at the moment, you know, at the at the sort of highest level. Whereas in the past, you'd be sort of gripped by the 
the big figures. I wondered why this September and October, you know, I used to love party conferences, really love them, and used to go to the fringe meetings and get excited to watch some of the great speakers at fringe meetings. I didn't feel that this autumn, really. You know, I couldn't get excited by the party conferences, and I know lots of other people who felt the same. Politics needs revitalizing, and this is one of the many things required to bring this about. But anyway, let's move straight away to the uh, many responses that I got. This is the Electoral Reform Special Question Time bonus podcast. And I want to begin, now this is an illustration of why I was the equivalent of a Methodist preacher having knocked back a bit of drink. I made a factual error. I don't think I have done in any previous podcast because you would have all let me know, but I did on this, which kind of... uh, made me think, oh, God, you're on fragile terrain here. Um, But anyway, so this was it. Uh, The great David Ward, who was John Smith's chief of staff when uh, uh, John Smith was leader of the uh, Labour Party, and what a potent combination they would have made if uh, John Smith had lived and Labour had uh, got into power in uh, 97 under that combination. But anyway, David, I think it was on Twitter rather than email, pointed out to me uh, that I said that John Smith had commissioned uh, the plant report on electoral reform because it became such a huge issue after Labour had lost the fourth election in a row in 1992. The plant report would be there to appease those crying out for electoral reform in the aftermath of yet another traumatic defeat. Um, But David points out to me that it was in fact Neil Kinnock who had commissioned the plant report because electoral reform was surfacing as an issue. And indeed, as I said last week, Neil Kinnock had come round to the view that a change in the voting system was necessary. And um, I I said he sort of came out during the 1992 election campaign. Uh, But David points out he was equivocal in what he said in the 92 election campaign. But the equivocation was enough for people to realise that Neil Kinnock was, in effect, backing electoral reform. And he was. He had come round to that view. And it caused a bit of a flurry with Roy Hattersley, his deputy, then a passionate opponent. He, by the way, Hattersley, has come round uh, in favour of it. Um, So, uh, David, thank you for alerting me to that. Uh, David also alerted me to an article written by the German writer Annette uh, Dittert. I hope that's the pronunciation, Annette, uh, for uh, the New Statesman. Coincidentally, just about the time as our electoral reform special erupted around the UK. And in her analysis of the causes of the chaos in uh, the UK, uh, Annette places first past the post very high up and explains why. And um, I sort of, I, I kind of agree with that analysis largely, though not wholly. Because if you blame the voting system, it, it, to go back to that thing I, I said about the Blair view, it does sort of give an excuse for the political parties who consistently fail to get their act together to win elections, apart from the Conservatives who can't govern but know how to win elections. It's a very powerful argument, and it is interesting 
Annette's piece is, you know, that kind of reflects what I'm told is a wider bewilderment in Germany about the state of the UK. You know, in Britain, people say, oh, bloody Europe, they're at war. You know, they, they're cross with us for regaining our freedoms on Brexit. And, you know, they're trying to make it tough for us, but we'll show the bastards. It's just bewildered pity. You know, it's none of that. They They don't see this country as a giant roaring post-Brexit. How could they? And anyway, she identifies first past the post as one of the issues that places Britain in this kind of pathetic, puny place we're in at the moment. So thank you very much uh, for that, uh, David. And David's written stuff as well about this. I, I think I'm right, David. I'm, 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 you would have corrected me if I was wrong. I mentioned last time, I don't think John Smith himself was a supporter of electoral reform. But he was the one, as I mentioned in our special part one, who proposed the referendum uh, on electoral reform. Tony Blair inherited that, uh, but used it to form a part of the reason for the bonding with Paddy Ashdown of the Lib Dems. But of course, famously, then never called the referendum. And for those of you who missed part one, I came out in favour of the implementation of the Roy Jenkins version of electoral reform. But a lot of you disagreed with that, even though you are passionately in favour of a change to the voting system. Okay, so let's now move on to uh, one of the uh, themes. Rob Lennox said, I would argue any electoral system that creates the number of safe seats first past the post does, is likely to create a large section of rather poor constituency MPs. So Rob is challenging the argument that one of the advantages of first past the post is the relationship between the local MP and the constituency. And I agree with you, uh, Rob, anyway. I think it is true that MPs with absolute rock-solid safe seats can, if they choose to, Uh, not be as assiduous as those with uh, marginal seats. But I think there's another reason why the whole role of the constituency MP has been romanticised to a dangerous degree, in that now a lot of MPs are closer to local social workers. It's admirable. They're committed to their constituency. They feel accountable either to their local party or to their wider constituency and much less to their national leadership. But that has uh, led to a shortage of big figures in opposition, ready to frame policies and make the case for those policies, and in government to implement the policies as well as framing them and making the case for them. So yeah, we we shouldn't get too worked up about the constituency, although of course with the Jenkins report you still have constituency MPs and it was one of the criteria that Blair set uh, for Jenkins to maintain that link. Joe Ruffles, there's a lot about fairness and the voting system, but Joe Ruffles uh, sent a great piece from the New York uh, Times uh, that came out after Brexit and the perception in Britain that it was unfair, Britain's membership, that Brussels exercised undemocratic, unaccountable power uh, was the driving force of Brexit. Now, as Joe points out, it's wrong, but that per- perception was intense and pervasive. 
And with the implication, I mean, Joe's a big supporter of changing the voting system. Uh, and indeed, he's so committed, he's going to a meet at a conference of the Electoral Reform Society, which he has promised to give us a full report on. He is making the point that if there is a change to the voting system, it has to be widely perceived as fair. And that's going to be a challenge because newspapers like The Mail, The Sun and others will come out against it and say it is uh, unfair, it's a power grab by Labour or whatever. And if it begins its new life, if there is such a life, uh, with swathes of voters thinking they're being robbed of democratic rights, we know from the European Union there's trouble ahead. One of the other themes, we're going to come back more widely to fairness in a second, but one of the other themes of questions, quite interesting this, is pointing out, of course, local government too could do with a reform of voting for local elections. So here are a couple of questions. It was raised by uh, Luke Evans, and here's Rob Watson saying, is a possible solution the introduction first at local government level where the current system seems to result in particularly unfair results. For example, where I live in Portsmouth on the city council, Labour in the most recent elections uh, won the popular vote across the city, but is the minority party on the council. And on a more dramatic scale, my former home in Lambeth, where Labour gained 58 of the 63 council seats on 54% of the votes, the Conservatives gaining 12% of the vote, but no seats. I'm sure there are uh, countless other examples. Yeah, I mean, clearly, if the focus is on electoral reform for Westminster, it obviously opens the door for a change of the voting system in local elections. And it is possible that the sequence will be the other way round uh, when we come to look at the practicalities of this. Try it out at a local level first and then move on to Westminster. I'm not advocating that. I'm advocating a big bang. If you're going to do it, do it fast. Uh, if you hang around, it won't happen, as we saw uh, in 97. And, you know, it, you either go for it or you just flap around and look at House of Lords reform. Now, if we could move on to this big theme of fairness. So Nick Ratcliffe, um, who is also a passionate supporter of electoral reform, he's a supporter of STV. Now, and I'm not going to go into the voting methods of all the different options now, if that's okay with you. So, by the way, is Jake Jackson, who argues uh, it works well in Northern Ireland. Before we come on to the fairness thing, which Nick also highlights, here I begin to worry about all of this, because once you kind of decide, yeah, we need a change in the voting system, you can get bogged down very, very quickly into which one should be adopted. And then you're in that, do you remember, God, none of us will ever forget it, the post-Brexit uh, Parliament. One option after another was put before the House of Commons and each one was defeated. May's deal, the Norway arrangement, a referendum, another referendum, you know, nothing could get through. And there are dangers of paralysis when a debate starts opening up as to which system. And also, while some will love it, others will be utterly bored by it. So there are dangers in this. But anyway, Nick says, I'm struck that you didn't really at any point consider fairness, which has been the reason I've supported a more proportional system my whole political life. 
It strikes me that all the arguments you cited against reform would have applied equally to not giving women the vote or not extending the franchise from the white-landed gentry in times past. Paul Stakelis, I hope, Paul, uh, uh, I've got your surname pronunciation right, I'm struck that you didn't really at any point consider fairness, which has been the reason I've supported a more proportional system my whole political life. It strikes me that all the arguments you cited against reform would have applied to, uh, equally to not giving uh, women the vote. So uh, there's another example. Venetia Kane um, isn't fairness a major argument for PR. At present, thousands of votes go wasted where people live in a so-called safe seat, because on the one hand, the clumping of Labour votes in proportionately fewer constituencies, and on the other, the scattering of Liberal Democrat voters across most constituencies. Fairness, fairness, fairness. Um, Helen on Twitter uh, cites the 1983 general election result in terms of seat distribution was so far from reflecting how votes were cast for each party it was almost comical. It was certainly absurd and of course a travesty. I think Helen is referring on Twitter to the um, fact that the SDP got almost the same percentage in 1983 of votes as Labour uh, but a tiny proportion of the seats compared with Labour. And incidentally, the Thatcher landslide and all talk of the zeitgeist of Thatcherism uh, was based on a relatively small proportion of the total electorate. And of course, if there had been a different system, perhaps you would have got a, a situation where Labour, SDP and the Liberal Democrats worked together, although frankly, it's hard to see how that would have happened in 1983, to be honest. Here is my thing about fairness. Yes, there is unquestionably a powerful argument to be made that the current system is unfair and that a change would be fairer in terms of the weight of each individual vote being cast. However, Fairness is complicated in politics. It is not a, a straightforward theme. So quite often, you know, a new voting system would lead to a coalition. And that will probably mean a smaller party exercising a greater weight of influence within a government than the votes cast. It also can lead to all sorts of odd things. So, for example, when we had the coalition here in uh, 2010, the Liberal Democrats had made a pitch in the 2010 election to the left of Labour on most issues. They got into power with a coalition and moved well to the right, formed a coalition of the radical right with uh, Cameron and Osborne. Now, is that fair? Was that a fair outcome? It was a legitimate outcome. They had the votes in the House of Commons to do it. But was it fair? The notion of fairness in uh, electoral politics is quite complicated, I think. But I absolutely take the point that some of the uh, outcomes have not only been unfair, but they've distorted the way we perceive politics. The triumph of Thatcherism in the 80s being one example of many. Uh, it was the fracturing of the non-Tory vote that enabled Thatcherism to win all those landslides in, well, two, 83 and 87. But there are other reasons why there was a fracturing of the non-Tory vote. 
culpability extends widely. The Labour Party became unelectable. There is an argument that the SDP might have been wiser to have stayed on and fought from within, like Healy and Hattersley. There is an argument that the onslaught against the likes of Tony Benn uh, became counterproductive because it just highlighted to the wider world that Labour was dysfunctional and split. It's why, strategically, I've always thought it was a mistake for Keir Starmer to suspend the whip from Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, People email me and text me and tweet me saying, ah, yeah, but Corbyn's unpopular. But that's not the point. Highlighting the, the, the fact that the leader at the last election, who you were campaigning to be prime minister, is unfit to even be an MP, is not the wisest strategic course, in my view. See how electoral reform gets you onto all kinds of other themes. So that's the fairness debate. And many, many of you, I would say the bulk of the response focused on this issue of fairness and and quite often advocacy of other voting systems to address the issue of fairness. Richard writes, I don't think Richard left his surname. Do you think if uh, Labour is elected at the next general election, they could introduce PR for future general elections and all other elections in their first year without referendum as part of a package for fairer government that could also include a minimum voting age of 16, compulsory voting, and an elected second chamber of the nations and regions? Well, You see, this is the kind of thing that uh, tempts me, uh, because if you do constitutional reform, although it is complex, you do need to do it quickly. Say, look at the mess Labour got into with uh, reform of the House of Lords, and then look at the mess the coalition got into uh, with reform of the House of Lords, and of course the failure of their electoral reform agenda as espoused by Nick Clegg, obviously opposed uh, by David Cameron and George Osborne. It, it, It leads to a sort of long drawn out paralysis so to do it quickly would be the way to do it Stephen Townsley has an, 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 another related thought Starmer need not explicitly put electoral reform in the manifesto he needs to take the conservatives lead on this their manifestos are notoriously thin on words Starmer just needs to say constitutional reform in inverted commas if asked then what the work of Gordon Brown in this space can provide cover He can then bring a bill to Parliament on electoral reform, pointing to a manifesto commitment to constitutional reform. Yeah, I think think Stephen has a very powerful point here. You can cover all sorts of things through language in the build-up to general elections. I'm writing a chapter for a new book on the uh, post-79 Margaret Thatcher revolution. And her 79 election manifesto is a work of art. It doesn't say, for example, that in their budget to follow a few months after that election, they were going to put up VAT, which they did in order to cut income tax. But there was language in that manifesto to give them cover to do it. And I think you're onto something. He's not going to put the case for electoral reform in this election, but you can use language that then gives you the scope to do so. However, To go back to the uh, Joe Ruffles point from the New York Times piece on the Brexit thing, it will have to be perceived by the wider electorate as a fair change, 
or else it will become the source of seething, irrational, but intense resentment forever. I loathe referendums. The idea of another referendum fills me with alarm. Um, so, uh, I, you know, if I the how for me is along the lines some of you have brilliantly suggested. Now, Tom Massey says, uh, I'm a faithful listener to rock and roll politics, but first time emailer in Chepstow. A retired EU official recently moved from Brussels. Well, welcome. We've got quite a range of Brussels correspondents, Tom, so thank you so much. Uh, And he says, do you think there are lessons to learn from New Zealand's adoption of PR in two referendums? First on the principle and then on which exact system? Now, this remains the theme of how you do it. And as you've just heard me say, Tom, uh, I'm so allergic to referendums. I'm drawn to the views of those in our cooperative who are arguing for a sort of quick legislative hit here. Get it done and implement it for the following election. There is this alternative course, which worked well in New Zealand. Tim Bale, who I cited last week, tells me, you know, it has worked well. There haven't been calls for it to be reversed on any scale that gives it a sort of fragility that Britain had with its membership, say, of the European Union. So that is the alternative route. And I think you're right. It sort of works if you're going to go down the other road with those two referendums, because it won't be highlighted in the general election, to get a vote in favour first, and then uh, a vote on the system. Now, my preference, say, lies with bugger all of that. Do it. Because I've got a feeling in Britain, if you go down any other route, it will never happen. But that is an interesting alternative. Now, let's move on to the wider question of reform, which has been referred to in the theme of how do you do it? Could it just be part of a wider range of constitutional reforms? So Sean Briggs from Norwich says, when it comes to constitutional issues, I would put the voting system down the list. I would prioritise sorting out the House of Lords, slim it down, take away most of the power of patronage by the political parties, fixed-term parliaments, election day on a weekend or a day off work, and a written constitution, pull together all the bits we have in one place and make the rules clear. And uh, so, yeah, you see, this is all part of what is the way to get voters engaged again, to address the issue of trust and politics, which, like fairness, is a complex theme, which we, uh, you know, we should do a special on trust and politics at some point. But these are all uh, good ideas. I'm, I, the fixed-term parliament is um, uh, dead, I think, uh, given how cynically it was deployed by the coalition and then dumped. Uh, but election day on a weekend or a day off, I think, is a uh, is a good way. I mean, you know, um, there is an argument for compulsory voting, I think. John Bennett writes uh, similarly, what are your views on the case for wider and more radical constitutional reform, including the need for a written constitution? And what are the chances of this happening? In my view, there's a good case for major change under a banner like fixing Britain's broken politics, and maybe Gordon Brown will recommend some steps in this direction. However, I doubt very much this will happen unless there's a much greater crisis than we currently face. Well, John, we face quite a range of crises at the moment. 
So if not now, when, in terms of questions about the health of British politics and the level of sort of misconduct and so on after the Johnson era. Um, But yeah, clearly electoral reform would have to be part of a wider package. It's not in itself a magic wand that cures everything. But I've come to the view that it is part of the cure. Mark Hannum writes, now he, this is an alternative view, okay, everybody, so whatever you're doing, take a whiskey, uh, a a glass of wine, love the show, but isn't one of the, oh, thank you very much, Mike, see, the dissenters love this as well. Isn't one of the positives of our current electoral system that it prevents extreme right-wing parties from gaining much traction here? Unlike elsewhere in Europe, proportional representation would enable extremists from either side of the political spectrum to gain representation in Parliament, which would provide them with legitimacy. Well, Mark, this, to be honest, is one of the things I am less worried about uh, in terms of how you bring about a change in the voting system and the consequences. Because, to be honest, the right-wing populists fear democratic scrutiny. Uh, Nigel Farage, the day after the Brexit referendum, resigned as leader of UKIP. He couldn't face the consequences. Lord Frosty Frost uh, loved getting a peerage and getting into the cabinet, uh, but when challenged in the House of Lords, he couldn't cope and uh, had to uh, uh, resign. Um, So I think if they get into the House of Commons, uh, they will be challenged and they will be found uh, wanting. And so I'm not worried. But you're right, that will happen. It will give a kind of life and platform to some on the extreme right. But, But remember, the modern Tory party sucked up much of the Brexit party. You know, one of the things that I don't think we fully come to terms with is Britain's governing party of choice, the Conservative, sorry, England's governing party of choice, the Conservative Party, um, has leapt to the right uh, really since the early 80s. And as we've discussed many times with Theresa May and Boris Johnson, there was attempts to move it economically a bit leftwards. But under Sunak and Hunt, I think that has gone. Let's go on to another theme, one of our favourite themes more widely uh, in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, the context of all of this. Uh, And this is from Nick Jones. The only point I would slightly take issue on is your assertion that the topic of electoral reform has only become fashionable when there's been a string of Tory governments. The issue was the subject of real debate at many Labour Party meetings I attended in the late 70s, when concerns were beginning to emerge at a local level about the infiltration of the party by people who had a few years earlier been active in far-left student politics, the International Marxist Group and International Socialists, etc. The same thing has happened to the Tories over the last few years. A fresh start would give everyone the opportunity to vote for a programme they believe in, not just the least worst option. Yeah, when I say it only becomes fashionable, after a, uh, in the Labour Party, especially after a long period of Tory rule, I, I, lots of people emailed me about this and said, "I've I've believed it for decades, been campaigning for it for decades. I fully appreciate there have always been a significant number of people who despair about first past the post and who've wanted a change, but it only 
soars up the agenda after the, the, this period of uh, long successions of conservative governments. I've mentioned last week, and I've mentioned it in the context of uh, today's uh, sequel, it was intense in the Labour Party after the 92 election defeat. Uh, those who wanted the change in the voting system were as passionate about it for a time as the Brexiteers and the Tory party were about Europe. Then when Labour won a landslide, passion for a change in the voting system faded quite a lot, to the point where, you know, when Blair dropped it, there wasn't a great furore when Blair dropped the pledge to hold a referendum on it. I don't even know if he had ever held that referendum, whether he would have campaigned for a change in the voting system. And now it's come back again, in a quite profound way, you know, the, the the Labour Party conference, there was a big push to get a motion uh, supporting a change in the voting system. And that's when Keir Starmer said it wasn't a priority or something uh, sort of uh, quite interestingly and ambiguous. It really soars up the wider agenda at these times. And it is interesting to hear in the late 70s, there were sort of people within the Labour Party pressing for it hard. But it really wasn't an, a big issue when Labour lost that election um, in 79. It was so interesting after the 79 election, if you look at those who wrote diaries amongst the, the senior figures in the Labour Party, uh, they, they assumed, you know, we were in that era of the swingometer they assumed they'd be back in power again after one term, a lot of them after 79. And uh, there wasn't a great focus on changing the voting system. When you lose four in a row, suddenly you think, oh, bloody hell, this voting system. And we're at that point again uh, now. Uh, it will be interesting to see uh, what happens if Labour win big next time. A bit of an if, whether this whole thing fades Again, for sure, if there's a hung parliament, it will be a very big issue because those smaller parties will make it a big issue. But that's, uh, you know, there are huge issues facing the next government and a hung parliament isn't the most stable context for those issues to be faced, frankly. Anyway, we're going back to the how this ever happens. Um, so, look, um, I'm going to stop there, if that's okay with you, because uh, say this is a bonus one. Do carry on writing to me about it. I mean, we can carry on doing it. We won't, uh, t we won't do another special on it for a bit. I've missed many hundreds of questions out, but it was those were the kind of themes, the sort of context in which many of you pointed out that this has been around for a long time as an issue, and I am aware of that. Um, the cause of wider constitutional reform and where this fits into that debate the issue of fairness, uh, the how it comes about. These are some of the kind of th things. And then as we began with the, 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 the deep flaws of first past the post. So, well, there we are. Electoral reform special. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. As I say, if you still haven't listened to the regular podcast, well, that's all about the Sunak and Hunt autumn statement, um, which is uh, the, the defining issue of the Sunak leadership in this parliament up until the general election. And there will no doubt be more to reflect on uh, when we get together again early next week. 
Thank you so much. This has been a question time special, really, not an electoral reform special, because it's been triggered by a range of brilliant questions, of which I've just selected a few as examples. And um, yeah, well, look, have a great weekend. And uh, we'll get together again next week, where we will have many things to make sense of. And if you want to get in touch further about this topic, or other huge mountainous issues which are going to surround us as we gather to make sense of them all do get in touch with me steve rick 14 at icloud.com and see you all very soon thank you bye